Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The U.S. is renegotiating social norms on gender issues. So is India. I'll talk with an Indian police chief about how notorious violent crimes have changed India's culture and her job. There's a lot of talking about building the next big super collider in China. We'll hear from a physicist originally from China who thinks that building it there might not be the best idea. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Women's rights are on the rise here and around the world. We're going to talk about the changing status of women in India. With me is Rema Rajeshwari, and she is a superintendent of police in the Indian state of Telangana. And thanks for joining us, Rema. Thank you, Jaram, for having me here. I wonder if we could give people a little geography lesson on Telangana. When I say that, uh, it is actually a newly formed Indian state. That is right. That was broken off from a gigantic Indian state. Yes. Uh, explain, and it, the, the capital's Hyderabad, a great big city that everybody's probably heard of. Um, tell us something about how what went down there. Uh, well, uh, the state of Telangana was formed uh, three years ago after a very long demand for a separate state, and it is the 29th state in India. Because I'm a law enforcement officer, I would rather talk more about the security and the kind of initiatives uh, taken up by the state government soon after coming to power. So if you look at the, uh, the, the, the priorities which were set by the government immediately after coming to power, women's safety was at its top. They established a task force on women's safety uh, with members from the civil service and also from experts on public security. What was the impetus for doing that? How did this brand new state come up and say, well, we really got to get on top of the women's security issue? Right. So the reason uh, uh, was that Hyderabad, like you rightly said, is quite a popular city and it is the IT capital of South India. A lot of uh, women come from across the country and they work there and the city is really developing fast. So they wanted to promote a safe city and they wanted to tell the country that, you know, we are a safe place to invest and we are a new state. We have a lot of ideas. We have a vision. So if you want to have a future state with a lot of potential for growth and development, you need to have security as your priority. And that's how it all started. What kind of programs uh, were you involved in helping implement there to make that happen? Well, the first uh, initiative was called as She Teams. And She Teams was a specialized team of officers who were trained in tackling public harassment of women, which is a huge issue in India. So this was for the first time in the country that a specialized force was uh, trained and they were deployed in public spaces to give a lot of confidence to women. And uh, it was called She Teams. So the women felt um, very comfortable in approaching the teams. And a lot of them started reporting about sexual violence, which was happening in public spaces. They started reporting incidents of Eve teasing, catcalling, and harassment over phone. So this was a great beginning. 
Were a lot of the people on the SHE teams, the officers, were they women? Uh, it has a mix of both. It is not completely women. Um, say if a team has 10 officers, five of them are women and five are men. How um, frequently are women in leadership uh, in the police forces women like yourself? Well, uh, if you look at the data, uh, the latest data available from the records of National Crime Records Bureau and Bureau of Police uh, research and Development in India, uh, women are uh, less than 7%. The total police force of the country is uh, 17.2 million, and the figure of uh, female component is close to uh, lakh 22,000. So we still are 7%, and that's a long way to go. For the people who are women who are trying to report crimes to she teams and officers, uh, it, I imagine having more women is an important component to, to getting them the courage to step forward. Absolutely. So that is uh, one of the major areas that I work. Uh, I've been championing for the cause to have more women in security forces in India because my um, opinion is that law enforcement should closely resemble the society that they serve. And if you look at the Indian scenario... Law enforcement is one of the least gender diverse public sector um, public sector in India. So we've been pushing, um, and a lot of state governments have taken initiatives to have reservation to have more women in the forces. And the uh, union government announced 33% reservation for women to enter security forces. But merely announcing reservation is not enough. The organizations have to take up um, steps to give confidence and the advertisements have to be appealing to women to give them confidence to join the force. What uh, gave you confidence to join the force? Why did you want to do it? Well, uh, I grew up in a hill station which once was the summer capital of the British. So I grew up listening to stories about the life of civil servants and becoming a civil servant was a childhood dream for me. So when I cleared the civil services examination in 2008, I was allotted to the Indian Police Service, which is also part of the civil services. So that's how I ended up becoming a police officer. And then you were a chart topper, as they're called, in yes. um, at the police yes. academy. And that, that kind of vaulted you into a... a, a high-end career here. Absolutely. So explain, you were with the, uh, an organization called the Greyhounds, as it was known? That was my first job. I started my job as an assault commander with the Greyhounds. It is an elite special force to fight against left-wing extremists uh, in the state of Andhra Pradesh, the then undivided state of Andhra Pradesh. So my job was to plan and team my uh, lead my teams into launching jungle-based operations to fight the left-wing extremists. All right, that's serious. And then you went on to uh, fight organized crime type of yes, situations uh, in India? Yes, yeah. It, it was uh, all sorts of crimes, uh, grave crimes, uh, sensational murders, white-collar crimes involving huge amounts of money and trafficking and uh, money laundering. It's, 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 the list is endless. Um, what would you say about the reputation of the uh, the police in India? Right. It's um, are 
I think most you know, when we're talking about women's issues, uh, they see them as unresponsive to women's issues. That that they're uh, that they've kind of had to go through some kind of awakening here. Well, there is a widespread uh, widespread criticism that the police in India are not quite sensitive and responsive to victims of uh, violence. Um, I would like to say that to a certain extent, it is true. But if you look at the uh, the transformation which is happening in the Indian police um, today, uh, a lot of effort has been taken to inculcate sensitivity among the police force. One of the main reasons why the police force uh, is not being able to respond on time is because of the shortage of manpower and limited resources. Like I said, uh, for a country uh, of over a billion population, we have 17 million policemen. So on an average, every policeman works for more than 14 hours in a day. And they work on weekends, they work during festivals. Not many can afford the luxury of a weekly off because of the amount of work that they have to do. So, But now uh, the state governments are trying to recruit more people to have uh, a lot of uh, resources for the police force. And that is giving a good result in terms of the response to crime against women or response to victims in general. It sounds like in Telangana, you've changed it and made it more uh, regional and that that is probably uh, a response to exactly what we're talking about, trying to get more uh, resources to the local populations. Yes, and that was a, a great change, and 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 that gave a lot of uh, motivation to the force. It was like a great morale booster. So when you have a lot of resources, and when you have this confidence that the state is really taking good care of you, and you really want to deliver well. I'm talking with Rama Rajeshwari. She is a superintendent of police in the Indian state of Telangana. And Telangana is a state, even in its um, smaller state, is has 34 million people in it. It would be uh, the second biggest state in the United States. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask you a bit about Hollywood. And you've been writing in the Times of India and talking about the role that, um, in your case, Bollywood is playing in um, setting uh, status for the uh, for this role of women in, in a society. Uh, what do you think Bollywood could be doing better? Well, uh, I strongly feel that the movie directors should have a responsibility towards their art. Like you rightly said, if you look at the way the movies are made in India, invariably, Every movie has a narrative which is so common, not just in Bollywood, but also in regional cinema. And you can see that the the male lead has to pursue the female lead. And this overly persistent pursuit of a female lead is acceptable as long as she falls for the male lead, even if it takes harassment and persistent harassment to win her over. And it is acceptable. And that is the most successful formula for filmmakers in India. And I feel that they have to denounce that and they have to come up with more responsible narratives because this kind of narrative, try they try to normalize stalking or sexual harassment of women or persistent um, harassment and, uh, you know, 
the way women are projected that you know they are just mere objects which is not right and the stalking issue um i don't think people here probably realize how persistent and the outcomes are so horrific sometimes often in india um, you listed off a bunch of them in a recent Times of India column, and it's really bad. The, the, the people, um, it's this is where some of the worst crimes uh, occur. Yes. So on the face of it, one would assume that stalking is just a low-level crime, and which is quite normal, and it's an accepted social behavior in India. But you, if you take a look at uh, the recent cases which happened in the last six months, there have been cases where a stalker has thrown acid on somebody's face, a girl's face, and she died eventually. There have been cases the stalker killed the entire family of the girl because she refused his advances. And there have been cases a techie, a woman techie was killed uh, by a jilted lover. And this is quite normal. So my stand is that stalking should be stopped at the beginning itself because it has the potential to lead to grave crimes like murder, you know, throwing off acid. And and so the social norm uh, kind of propagated by films is that, you know, pursuit to, you know, a of women is completely validated and in the end, she she says yes, and things are great, and you go off and live happily yes, ever after. Happy and, ending. And but in 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 the social norm, if they don't say yes, there it's too humiliating, and uh, these kind of crimes occur. Yes. So uh, um, if you look at the post Nirbhaya scenario in India. Uh, what that, I mean that was by the say, 2012 uh, yes, rape case in yes. Delhi that got international attention. The, the yes, bus you're rape. right. So after December 2012, um, a law was enacted in India. It is called the Criminal Law Amendment Act 2013. For the first time ever, a judicial committee was appointed to take a deeper look into rape laws in India. So the definition of rape was expanded beyond the usual vaginal intercourse and now they have more crimes included in the Indian Penal Code. So stalking, voyeurism, throwing off acid, they're all punishable crimes now. So stalking is a punishable crime under Section 354D of the Indian Penal Code. And our effort has been to tell the women that you, know, you should come out and report if you're being stalked and if you're being harassed. And is that going... Uh, well, would you say people, women are forthcoming about that? Yes, absolutely. And that that's a great positive change which is happening in India. Um, and uh, if you uh, consider uh, the police governance in India, there's a lot of transformation happening there as well. Uh, police is increasingly using social media to connect to the people, which was never the case in India. There was always a disconnect between the community and the law enforcement. And now the law enforcement is making conscious efforts to connect with the community to tell them that we are here to serve you, especially women and other weaker sections of the society. So that is giving them a lot of confidence to come out and seek justice. I'm talking with Rema Rajeshwari, and she is a superintendent of police in the Indian state of Telgana, and we are going to be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about the changing status of women in India. With me is Rema Rajeshwari. She is superintendent of police in the Indian state of Telangana. Um, before the break, we were chatting about how the new laws in 2013 uh, were changing uh, India and some of the ways that um, these new laws that were the growth out of this uh, horrific case in 2012 ended up uh, really making some permanent changes. And we talked uh, a little bit about stalking, but I wanted to talk about catcalling as well. Catcalling is against the law now. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, Like I mentioned before the break that a lot of new crimes have been added in the list, like stalking, catcalling, and uh, online harassment. So the the scope of... uh, Harassment against women is expanded now after the new legislation was enacted. And can you give us some idea about what happens with catcalling and uh, how that, because we went through stalking and it seems, oh, that's what's going on with stalking. Uh, What goes on with catcalling? Well, uh, a woman is made to feel very uncomfortable in a public space, which is not acceptable. So we are talking about a progressive country. And if you want development, we need to ensure that the women are safe when they are out in the street. So if she's not feeling safe, then you cannot talk about progress and development. So catcalling is something which might seem very trivial, but it definitely affects the psyche of a woman. If she's not feeling comfortable to step out and contribute towards the development of a nation, then there's no point talking about it. And it seems like these instances of catcalling sometimes are persistent in the same place every day. I talked with a woman who was a researcher, uh, had some researchers in Mumbai look into this, and they were... Uh, they narrowed it down to like, well, it's on, on this train station at this place. Uh, every day there's a there's a bunch of people who do this and it's acceptable. At this uh, construction site at this place, there's a bunch of people and they're doing this. Right. That's right. So that is why as part of the She Teams, we did a survey, a detailed and intensive survey of public spaces. And we identified hotspots. We used to call them hotspots. So hotspots are the spaces where persistent stalking, public harassment, or catcalling happens. And we want to make those spaces safer. How do you go in and bust that kind of thing up? Well, so uh, the the way she teams work is that uh, they work as a decoy team. They don't wear their uniform. They are in their CVs. And they carry gadgets which can secretly record an offense. So these teams are deployed in these hotspots. They just go and they watch the area. And if they see any offense happening against a woman, if she's being harassed in the public, they secretly videotape it and immediately apprehend the offender. And what happens to the offender? Then we encourage the woman to give a complaint, a case is registered, and he's charged. And if he happens to be a minor, it so happens that some of the minor children are also engaged in this kind of public harassment we call the parents and we have a system where we give counseling to these minor offenders um is um does everybody buy into that program in the in the police uh, police team they do after looking at how effective it has been because uh, when we started 
uh, we had no idea that we will end up registering over 800 cases in just six months. Wow. In, in one city, in just one city. So the impact was huge. And we also have other mediums to reach out to the women. We use social media. We use Facebook and we have a WhatsApp group. It's called the Citizen Connect WhatsApp group. So they can send message. And if if a victim wants to keep her identity as confidential, we support that and we help them with that. So they feel more confident. Did you feel like you had created a new social norm there with this kind Absolutely. of uh, situation that the media covered it? And I imagine it was... Uh, quite a thing. Absolutely, it was. And and like I said, until 2012, uh, talking about sexual crimes or sexual assault against women was a taboo in India. And today, if you look at the data under crime against women, the number is going up. The major reason is because more women are coming out to talk about it and to report about it. So they're feeling confident to come out and speak up against sexual assaults, and which is a positive change. Do you think that uh, most of these changes are happening in cities in India, or, or is it the same in rural areas? Is it a lot more difficult to get that kind of thing? Uh, well, in? the rural areas, uh, it takes time, but these efforts are implemented in rural areas as well. It is not just in city. I'm talking with Rema Rajeshwari. She's a superintendent of police in the Indian state of Telangana. She's a contributor with the Times of India and was uh, recently a world fellow at Yale University for 2017. Uh, you've been here in the U.S. for a year at Yale. Um, what did you make of the, the policing here? I, I imagine you got to look into it and, and see, uh, have a comparative uh, look at what's going on. Well, uh, I had the great opportunity and honor to learn more about the local law enforcement systems here, uh, particularly the state police in Connecticut and New Haven Police Department and the FBI in New Haven. And uh, that was a great experience for me because I learned a lot about how they are using technology to increase the effectiveness of police service delivery in the United States. Number one, number two, uh, the the uh, the latest initiative by FBI New Haven, and they call it a community safety initiative. It's it's part of their outreach program to reach out to the communities to give them confidence and to to make sure that they have more trust in the law enforcement system. And that was quite an experience for me. And I learned quite a bit about the neighborhood policing, how they are having uh, collaboration with the community to improve law enforcement in the United States. How did you compare it to your situation in India? Because it sounds like you've got something, um, something similar going on. Well, uh, um, in India, if you look at the constitutional arrangement, it's a quasi-federal setup. And police is a state subject in India. So the state government has the right to enact laws and legislations. At the same time, the federal government also comes up with some legislations. Uh, in terms of implementation, it is the responsibility of the state. So we don't have uniform systems across the country, but a lot of states are making efforts to come up with community safety initiatives. They call it community policing in India. Um, is... Uh how old is the Indian police force that you're working on? And, and how, I mean, is there a colonial kind of um, 
hangover in the security services? Well, uh, I must admit that, yes, it still exists because the Indian Police Act of 1861 is a vintage law <laughs> because this was enacted uh, exactly four years after the mutiny which happened in 1857 against the British East India Company by the natives. So they enacted this law to contain the local population. And this was draconian. So over the years, uh, some amendments happened and post-independence, many states came up with their own police act. But by uh, by and large, the Indian Police Act remains the same. If there was something you could change about this structure and the wave of a hand, what would it be? So this seems like something that's pretty deeply ingrained. Well, uh, uh, I do hope that the government uh, comes up with a committee to look into the act. In fact, it did a few years ago uh, in 1995. Um, one of my mentors, he's retired from the Indian Police Service. His name is Mr. Prakash Singh. He filed a public interest litigation in the Supreme Court of India asking for police reforms in the country. That was a huge case, and it is called Prakash Singh versus Union of India case. It's like a watershed moment in the history of Indian police. So the Supreme Court gave a set of guidelines asking for the state governments to start initiating police reforms. Uh, In 2006, the set of guidelines were implemented by some of the states, but it's a long way to go. So the basic colonial structure has to undergo a sea change if we want to be a progressive police force. Well, I am sure that uh, India will get there. With, With people like you, it seems to be on its way. I am very optimistic. Remo Rajeshwari is superintendent of police in the Indian state of Telangana. She's a contributor with the Times of India, where you can read her articles, and was just a 2017 World Fellow at Yale University. It's been great talking with you. Congratulations on your work. Thank you so much, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we will talk about uh, whether China should get the next super collider or not. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Every year, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists recognizes an outstanding emerging science and security expert who connects science to policy outcomes. This year's winner is Yang Yang Chen, whose winning entry talked about science as a path out of adversity and a great equalizer. Chen argued for scientists to join last year's March for Science. Yang Yang Chen is a research associate at Cornell University. She is a fellow at the LHC Physics Center at Fermilab. And thank you very much for joining us. It's nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me a little about yourself, because it seems like one of the appealing things about your essay was just learning uh, what a big impact science had on your life. Yeah, it's true. So I was born and raised in China, and I was born a few days before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Over three generations on both sides of my family are academics and educators. My dad passed away when I was very young, so I was raised by a single mom in a typical 
second-tier city in China, the capital of one of the poorest provinces. And I understood at a very young age that science was not only one of my interests, but it was a way for me to paraphrase Hamilton to science my way out instead of writing my way out. And so um, I went to college at University of Science and Technology of China, the so-called Caltech of China. I went to one of its special programs, which is so-called um, the special class for the gifted young at age 15. And then I came to the U.S. at age 19 for my Ph.D. in physics at the University of Chicago, graduated in the fall of 2015. And then since I've been with Cornell University and starting this year also with a Fermilab. So you say it's a path out of adversity. What does that mean? You just shot right up. Um, I think I should take a step back and say I am not Oliver Twist. I understand the privileges of my own upbringing. I only mentioned my age in the context that I was born in one-child policy China. So the fact that I was given the opportunity to be born and given access to education, living in peace times in a family that is not materially wealthy, but still gave me access to education is an extremely important thing. But I wrote the article from the context of science as an equalizer and as a way of out of adversity, because I think a lot of the discussions and a lot of the controversy surrounding the March for Science last year was around the idea of how science discussed in a Western context has been historically a white male dominated sphere. And there are a lot of reckoning with these historical ills and structural flaws in science. And so I wanted to write about it from my own perspective as an immigrant, as a woman, and as someone from a developing country and for, for the part when I was growing up. Um, that science has a cosmopolitan ideal that should not be lost, even though it has these flaws and limitations in practice. Have you seen that ideal in the work that you've been doing? You, you've managed to um, be involved in some really interesting stuff. You're with the Large Hadron Collider in outside of Geneva, which is the cutting edge of physics experimentation, the big collider out there that's doing all the higgs bosom work. Is there an ideal of how things should work there? Yes, this is actually um, a great question, because I actually became a particle physicist and in particular, I became a collider particle physicist because not only I am interested in the science that we are pursuing the most fundamental questions about the composition and interactions of nature. On the other hand, I am also deeply intrigued and inspired by the way the collaboration functions. For example, the Large Hadron Collider, the two largest experiments, the Atlas experiment where I received my PhD on and the CMS experiment where I'm currently working on. Both experiments have 3,000, roughly, collaborators each. Wow. And they come from dozens of countries and hundreds of institutions. And so there are the Western wealthier states, but there are also less developed countries. And the scientists themselves come from a variety of backgrounds, of color and creed. And so this is actually a great example of how science at its best can be an equalizer and unifier how countries and institutions, communities and individuals can come together to work in such elaborate yet still effective collaborations 
and to solve problems and pursue ends that are beyond immediate material means, which I think um, should be referenced or should be practiced more in other aspects of human endeavor. That would be good. Is there some collaboration that you worked on that helped crystallize this for you? Is there someone you worked with from a, a place that you thought was an unlikely place you'd ever be collaborating with, a person you never thought you'd meet? Hmm. This is an interesting question. I wouldn't immediately phrase it this way because I had a certain expectation of how internationally collaborative and how diverse the community is. Um, But I should say that if we look at the geopolitics of today, countries from traditionally adversarial or even present-day in conflict states like Russia and Georgia, Israel and Iran, um, we have collaborators from these countries as well working together in a not only peaceful but almost brotherly fashion. So I think that is an encouraging thing. I'm talking with Yang Yang Chen. She is a research associate at Cornell University, and she is a fellow at the LHC Physics Center uh, at Fermilab. She won the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists Riser Award to recognize outstanding emerging science and security experts who connect science to policy outcomes. And she also has been working on CMS experimentation at the Large Hadron Collider, which we've been talking about, the great big European collider. Uh, There have been several collider projects, and we've seen them go from Fermilab to Europe to maybe somewhere else in the future. Um, What are collider projects? Why do they matter? So, um, for example, we had a Tevatron just outside of Chicago at um, at Fermilab before, and now the Large Hadron Collider. It is the largest, most complex, and most expensive machinery ever built. So a collider, as its name suggests, it collides stuff. So at the Large Hadron Collider, we accelerate proton beams to nearly the speed of light, and we smash them together. So if you want to understand the most basic composition of matter and how they interact with each other, the way to do it is to break them up. So it is extremely exciting because we are, in a sense, recreating some of the split seconds right after the creation of the universe, where the most basic components of the fundamental particles interact with each other and create new forms of particles and new compositions. And around these collision points, we would build particle detectors, which are both the world's largest microscopes and the world's largest cameras. They are like onions with many layers. So the new particles would travel through them and leave their marks through the different layers of subdetectors. And through the marks that they left behind, we can reconnect the dots, reconstruct the particles, and study their property. And they would both, we would be able to check these results against our theoretical models to see whether or not nature is behaving as the way we predict, or nature contains many surprises that we need to understand. First of all, particle physics is a field of basic research. Human beings, there is a certain value to this that we want to know, we want to explore. And this is the fundamental driver. Um, The entire history of humankind is a history of migration and exploration. There is the exploration beyond Earth into space. And there is the exploration of understanding the world we live in. 
And this is the part about particle physics where we are trying to understand the most fundamental questions.、Um, there is an almost philosophical sense to this: is we deserve to know and we should know. And beyond that, on、um, fundamental underpinning, there are also a lot of technological spillovers and spinoffs from large science projects, including particle physics projects. One of the best examples is the web was created at CERN, where the LHC is located, decades ago, and many aspects of our civic life, from PET scans. And other forms of、uh, medical technology, from diagnostics to treatment, as well as like the basic silicon chips in our smartphones, a lot of these technologies are becoming ubiquitous in our daily lives. Can find their scientific ancestry and trace back to particle physics experiments and other forms of basic research. There's talk of a. New collider coming up that can do more colliding than the European collider, and a lot of people think that China is the likely place to build it.、Uh, you wrote recently in Foreign Policy last fall your thoughts about locating this in China, and it sounds like you're worried that the kind of collaborative thing that we were just talking about wouldn't exactly fly in China. <laughs> What are your concerns there? Thanks a lot for mentioning this because this is something that's been weighing on my mind a lot, both before the article as part of the research. That's why I wrote it, and also in the aftermath,、um, getting feedback and talking to people about it. And the Economist actually just ran an article arguing for a future collider in China. So I think there are diverse perspectives, which is good. I should emphasize a premise: is that this is not a set thing. These are proposals. That there could be a successor to the Large Hadron Collider, including the Large Hadron Collider's own upgrades that are being planned to also actively work on. And Japan, with its International Linear Collider, CERN,、um, the European Center for Nuclear Research, where the LHC is located, has its future circular collider FCC, and also China has its own proposals for a lepton. Collider at first, which can be eventually upgraded to a hadron collider, and there is also another important distinction: is I'm not arguing against scientific collaboration with China. Actually, I think that is very important and should be carried on. But collider particle physics is unique that the entire field is highly consolidated on a singular experiment. Like on here in Chicago, just outside Chicago at Fermilab, there used to be the Tevatron. At the current stage, there is LHC, and it's highly unlikely that there will be more than one successor to the LHC. And in that context, scientists and decision makers should be particularly careful in thinking: where do we build the next collider? And a collider doesn't exist in a vacuum. A collider exists in a society with its political structure and its constraints. And I think a lot of Western scientists. With the best of intentions, but are not familiar with China, especially seeing the economic rise of China. The natural inclination from、um, Western scientists could be thinking that China is becoming richer, and prosperity must be accompanied with a certain degree of freedom. And China has been very good.、Um, the Chinese government has been very good 
at achieving something that is almost unnatural or incomprehensible to a lot of Western public, of how China can become the second largest economy in the world, but still remain a Leninist state in the sense that the Communist Party controls everything. And in my foreign policy piece, I also started with. The question I asked one of the high-level officials at the Chinese Academy of Sciences, who is heading this new collider effort, whether or not there would be a party branch at this new experiment, and he was very、um, upset by my question and said I should not quote unquote stir the pot because politics is too sensitive and it could kill the project. So one hand, there is a lot of political uncertainty. The second part is. People in China are not free. This is the first layer. The second layer is a lot of people outside of China, in order to do business with China, are willingly、um, giving up part of their freedom and kowtowing to the Chinese government with their demands in curbing academic freedom, which we see in, on university campuses, curbing freedom of speech and expression, as actually just came out from yesterday, like Marriott hotels and. Delta Airlines, with regards to、um, the territorial names of different parts of Chinese territory. So I wrote this in the context of the Fuchsia Collider, but I think the implications is much greater, especially like Western professionals and Western public, including governments and civil society, shouldn't just see China as a place where there will be money and resources, and we should just chase after it. But understand the political implications and the strings that are attached to that funding, and be able to stand up for one's principles and stand up for liberal democratic values, and hold that as a bottom line with regards to how to engage China. I think that a lot of people in the West think that if we keep knocking on the door with our Western values, with our freedom of speech and association, eventually it will come to China. And people have thought this about a series of encounters with China and engagements with China, and they think, well, we are going to liberalize and create some kind of rule of law in China that is going to、uh, transform the country. Um. I'm increasingly less patient with this line of argument, because I think China opened up its markets 40 years ago, roughly, right? And Hong Kong was handed over to China 20 years ago. China joined the WTO over a decade ago, and every single time this line of argument is being made, that as long as we Engage China and welcome China into the global community. China will become freer. I believe the intention is good, but such good intentions cannot be based on willful ignorance or even self-deception. What we have seen through these instances, for example, the handover of Hong Kong twenty years later, Hong Kong is less free and China is less free. And China joined the WTO over a decade later. What we are seeing is China is able to use its economic leverage to curb these trade rules and these liberal democratic values. So China has become very good at using tools of Western democracy 
as a way to exert its influence. One good example is recently、um, there is this Australian scholar, Clive Hamilton, who has a new book that was supposed to come out called Silent Invasion, talking about Chinese government's political influence in Australia, and this is going to be published with an Australian publisher. And the publisher pulled the book right before it was going to go into print, for fear of retaliation from Beijing, because the Chinese government has been very good at using libel laws、um, in Australia, which are different from the First Amendment protections here in the U.S. So these are things that people should become aware of and be cautious about when people continue to make such arguments. It's interesting. You were talking about the people who are working in Europe on the Large Hadron Collider. I imagine none of them had their politics checked before they got involved in the project. And but you're worried that in China, if you were going to apply to be working on the big project in particle physics, you would get your politics checked. I think getting one's politics checked is one way to put it. But I would rather say it's more a means of self-censorship. People on the collider particle physics community would be giving tacit endorsement of the Chinese government and be opting out of political speech and advocacy and activism in order to protect their careers if the future collider is located in China. So I think、um, what is more dangerous is not necessarily what the retaliation would be, because we have seen how the Chinese government has been able to maintain control is largely reliant on self-censorship and how people have exceeded the state of their lives and wittingly given up their civil liberties and not even fighting for it anymore. I'm talking with Yang Yang Chen. She is a research associate at Cornell University. She is a fellow at the LHC Physics Center at Fermilab, and she、uh, recently won the Riser Award from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists for an outstanding emerging science and security expert who connects science to policy outcomes. I'm curious about how this affects your own career. If China gets the big accelerator, I'm not exactly sure they'd want you on the project.、Mm-hmm. As that, that would be maybe the least of it.、Um, that is true. Actually, it was interesting. After my foreign policy piece came out, some of my <laughs> colleagues would half jokingly, half concerned, ask me if I ever imagine going back to China or how many countries are you banned from visiting anymore, and. These comments were made in jest, but I also understand. Like I am a human being, I have family, I have my life that I try to protect. But then again,、um, when I wrote the piece, it was also during the time of take a knee,、uh, the Colin Kaepernick,、uh, the, the NFL protests and such. And so I think there is actually、um, a common theme, right? What does one value? When I was conducting interviews for my piece, I was repeatedly being told, as I also wrote. Uh, my colleagues who are supportive of the Chinese project would ask me, "What do you care about more, on、um, your career as a physicist or human rights?" As if these are mutually exclusive. And my own standing is always: first of all, they are not mutually exclusive, and secondly, one should be willing to take risks, professionally and personally, to stand up for values, because values are only empty slogans. 
unless they are being challenged and one needs to put their careers and their bodies on the line to defend them. Yanyan Shen, she won the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists Riser Award to recognize outstanding emerging science and security experts who connect science to policy outcomes. Thanks a lot for joining us, and it was very inspiring talking to you. Oh, thank you so much for your time, and it's great talking to you as well. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll continue talking to inspiring women. We'll speak with the National Field Coordinator of the upcoming Women's March. Hope you can join us tomorrow on Worldview. We also hope you can join us on Thursday at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. We're doing a segment there on artificial intelligence and ethics. We'll have a Duke University professor who is also affiliated with the Future of Life Institute, and his idea in project there is how to build ethics into artificial intelligence. Intelligence projects. We'll also be speaking with a project manager at DARPA, and he is working on breakthrough technologies for national security for the Defense Department there at DARPA. And we'll have a good chat with them and talk about artificial intelligence and ethics at the Chicago Council on Thursday, January 18th. And you can get tickets and more information at wbez.org/events. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.